Welcome everyone to this BMJ breakfast at the Nuffield Summit. I'm delighted to have you all here. Um, I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and our focus today is going to be about workforce planning, particularly medical workforce for the future of the NHS, but we'll probably have a slightly wider conversation as well around issues uh, facing the NHS at the moment. If I could ask those taking part in the, in the round table to introduce themselves, and I'm going to start with Clifford. I'm Dr Clifford Mayer. I'm President of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Hello, I'm Dr Sam Barrell. I'm Chief Executive at Taunton and Somerset Foundation Trust. I'm Candace Anderson, Director of Policy at the Nuffield Trust. Morning, I'm Richard Jones. I'm a cardiologist in Portsmouth and Clinical Director of the Wessex Cardiovascular Network. I'm Sarah Gifuru. I'm a Specialist Registrar at Sheffield Teaching Hospitals. I'm Nina Modi. Um, I'm a Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College London and President of the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health. Good morning, my name is Claire Lima. I'm a consultant in general paediatrics at the Evelina in London. And I'm Ben Mearns. I'm a consultant physician and geriatrician and chief of medicine at Surrey and Sussex Healthcare. I'm Sarah Pickup. I'm deputy chief executive at the Local Government Association. I'm Jeremy Taylor. I'm chief executive of National Voices. Thank you very much. I wonder if I could open up by um, quoting an editorial that Chris Ham wrote in the BMJ this last week in which he said the NHS is in the grip of the biggest crisis in its history. Uh, which may be hyperbole or may be justified. And I I'm just wondered if people would give a brief comment on what they consider to be uh, the things that may or may not uh, mean that that is true. Candace, can I start with you? <laughs> well, clearly one of the biggest drivers of that comment is the mismatch we've got between the resources coming into the NHS and the demand um, that our population is placing on it. And we've got a growing gap between those two things and the consequence for that is felt particularly by staff on the front line who are having to work harder and faster to try and bridge that gap and it's very, very problematic. Mm. Thank you. Samantha? Yes, I mean, um, I personally do think we are in a crisis. I, I don't think um, we can pretend we're not. We've got a massive financial gap for the NHS. I personally don't think it will be closed um, by 2020, even with the efficiency savings and our very best efforts. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing our absolute best with that, but I don't think it will. I think there's a workforce crisis. And I think there is an issue about how we need to transform our models of care to be much more... Uh, person-centred and much more appropriate for people's needs than they currently are. All of those challenges could be met, but together they make a bit of a perfect storm. Thank you. Clifford? Well, I, think, I think the real challenge that uh, people alluded to yesterday is the fact that a lot of people have a pretty good idea of the things that could be done to improve our current situation, but you need a certain amount of headroom to be able to do that. And we seem to have spent most of the last decade really cutting down on that headroom all the time, shaving off small amounts of time or small amounts of money in a thousand and one different directions. Uh, and so all we really now are able to do is deliver the core service on a good day. And if anything overstretches us in any way, that core service starts to tip over. And I think that's where we are at the moment. Thank you very much. Jeremy? From the patient side? <laughs> well, we already know what patients want. Um, they want um, care which is caring and personalised and coordinated and enabling. Uh, there's the elements of person-centred care. Uh, the good news is there is lots of evidence that all over the country people are experimenting with creating models of care. 
that deliver uh, that kind of experience for patients. Uh, the thing that worries uh, me and our members um, is that people don't have the time or the headspace um, to make the changes that are really necessary systematically and that the relentless focus on controlling cost actually uh, is lived out as uh, um, a trade-off between cost and quality. Thank you. Sarah? Well, I think um, there is a crisis, um, and I think it stems from the fact that the NHS was designed to deliver episodes of care which treated someone and then they went off and they went back to their lives. And now what we're dealing with is something different, which is people with long-term conditions, people who have um, a need for ongoing support, not necessarily treatment, um, and we are still trying to get the system to fit. And, and I think a lot of us know the things that could make a difference, um, but we struggle in two ways. One, because we're so busy trying to tackle the crisis, and the other, because the decision-making isn't always clear. Who is it that can decide to make the shift that's needed because things work in organisational boundaries? Thank you very much. Ben? I think the crisis that I see is one of um, stress, and I see that uh, in a number of different parts of the NHS, uh, the GPs in the recent survey have come out as one of the most stressed groups in, in any of the developed countries. And in the hospitals, I think we're asking people to do so much now. And at times, I think it feels like um, we are overstretching people. Um, so I think that we have to get a handle on that. We have to stop the firefighting bit and strategize. Um, because I think if we really look at how we can make the most of each individual and free up their time to do what they do best, I think that's got to be the solution. Thank you very much. Claire? So I think three additional points. One follows on from Ben's point, and it's really about morale at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about junior doctors. Mm -hmm. Across the piece, morale is really struggling. The second is sort of interlinked with that, which is that um, I, I really do think we're at a cusp of a moment when it comes to technology. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, technology is not really there to help those workers in the NHS. And then the third thing is around what are we training, what are we creating a workforce for? And as we work that out, it takes so long to then train and create the necessary skills that we need to fulfil that, that there's this massive time lag where we don't quite have the right attributes in people. And so we fit people into slightly challenging roles, which just recreate some of those cycles. Thank you very much. Nina. Thank you. I'd like to challenge the popular wisdom that the financial crisis is largely due to the growing ageing population. Um, I would suggest instead that the financial crisis, which is a crisis and it is very deeply crippling um, to the health service, is really due to the fact that a squeeze has been placed upon it and we have enormous fiscal mismanagement at the highest level. So at the lower end, at the shop floor, we are, as, as was rather facetiously discussed yesterday, stopping um, uh, sandwiches at, at, at meetings. But actually, at the other end of the scale, we're seeing huge amounts of monies waste in, for example, managing the, the internal market, in huge IT disasters, in uh, some really horrendous uh, uh, examples of incompetence, such as the increase in the cost of phenytoin from two million to I think 47 million pounds because of incompetence in actually agreeing or negotiating the contracts with drug companies. These are really, really large sums of money. And I would suggest that, that what we really need to look to is better fiscal management at the top end of the NHS and stop worrying about the biscuits and the sandwiches down at the bottom end. Thank you. Sarah, um, as a trainee, what I see going back into practice Rota gaps are apparent everywhere and that's both for medical staff, nursing staff and everyone is particularly stretched. 
Um, and I think it's that constant, what are we fighting for, what are we doing, and you know, where's where's the help going to come from? And people are just being pushed in all directions, and it's very very difficult to kind of keep the momentum going if we're struggling constantly. And what about the senior support? Senior support always very very positive. Senior support, um, generally speaking, um, and but you see your seniors are always pushed and stretched as well. So you just kind of think, where is the light at the end of the tunnel, and why am I doing this, and how far do we go with this? Thank you very much, Richard. Um, thank you. I think there is a crisis, but I'd like to return to this uh, much mentioned subject of morale. Morale is so important because it does determine discretionary effort, the going above and beyond for our patients. And as soon as doctors, nurses and others stop going above and beyond, uh, then we really do have a crisis. I'm an unabashed fan of how the Royal Navy uh, does this. I work in Portsmouth. They've got a 200-year history of understanding morale and how to get the best out of people, often in difficult circumstances for many months. Uh, away from their loved ones. Uh, so I think we need to look outside the NHS and think carefully about how how we manage and look after people. Thank you. We'll come back to morale in a moment, but I just wanted to ask um, a broader question about the planning or the, the development of a, of a really resilient and, and properly skilled up medical workforce. And Candace, if I may come, come to you on this, because I know this is your real area of focus at the moment, is what would you say in response to people say we're not, we, we still aren't getting it right that you know after all these years of trying to match the medical workforce to the need, we're still failing to do that? And, and what would you say we need to do to address that if it's true? So I think we um, have unrealistic expectations of workforce planning, um, given particularly around medical workforce, the time lag between making a decision to either expand your numbers or contract, um, and the consequence of that, which is 15 years hence, the world has, has moved on. Um, so my own view is that we should plan for, for more medical workforce rather than less and not try to land the, the um, aeroplane on a pin and that we need to build adaptability into our workforce so actually what clinicians of the future are going to face is change and they're going to have tools like the information technology that Claire was alluding to which actually is going to is creating a fundamental shift in how clinicians relate to knowledge. This is not something that will come from medical school. It will be an ongoing relationship between the databases of the future. So it's a really different mind shift. And my big beef is that we don't put enough resources into developing the workforce today. All our workforce money goes into the workforce of the future. And as Claire was saying, that's leaving us with a really big problem at the moment. Thank you. Ben. I think um, we um, we started out with um, you know like most hospitals will a historic workforce, and I think that that's something that often when you're talking at high level about what the NHS workforce will look like, um, I think you have to understand very quickly that a one size fits all approach is not going to work because um, historically you will have the workforce that you have, and it takes quite a long time and effort to try and change and adapt that. So um, we did quite well by um, talking with our, um, our, our medical teams to move um, quite a few people into the twilight period and night time. And they willingly did it. You know, I, I think it's a myth that um, junior doctors and others don't want to do things like that. They just need to know they can do it sustainably and, and, 
and, and, um, and it's not going to run them into the ground. And the way we achieved it is that when we realised that the skill mix we needed in the night time involved putting some more doctors in the night time, we realised in the daytime actually did we need more doctors and we chose to go down a physician associate route of employing a team of six physician associates back to the ward. And that worked brilliantly well and um, it was something that uh, was dependent on the competencies of the people we brought in, matching and in many ways catalyzing with with the, the doctors that were there. And actually, there were lots of unintended benefits to that, but we had to sit down, think it through, not immediately leap to the, 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 the usual reaction, well, let's go and get six more doctors. Um, uh, and, um, and it was a bit of a leap. You know, we, ha we, we had to bring a lot of people with us um, because when you're going to do that, um, you know, there, there is adaptive change. Samantha. We've done quite a lot of work in, um, at our hospital on leadership training and I think um, one of the things at uh, medical school that needs to be thought through and all the way through your postgraduate training is how do we develop our doctors to be doctors that are clinical leaders in every um, department they work in. We've put about 600 uh, staff through a lead programme internally designed last year and another 600 this year, and we're teaching improvement te um, techniques within that, that course. But even so, when you go to different areas in, in, in the hospital, um, some of our clinical uh, leaders do feel nervous about actually leading performance and, and driving change. They, they feel ill-equipped to do it. And I think that's really important to, uh, to get right. And we're, we're still so much focusing, I think, on um, measuring the wrong things to encourage um, improved uh, uh, performance. So we, we encourage, um, at the moment, there's still quite a hierarchical model. It's a less of a distributed leadership model throughout the NHS. Um, very much almost like a blue-collar working type model where um, you're rewarded for seniority and years in the job rather than the impact and the outcomes that you actually deliver. Thank you. Sarah? How do we uh, use our workforce... Uh, to have the joining links. We need some different bits of workforce. I mean, we talked about one uh, type here. To, to enable that person-centred approach so that, you know, the thing that Jeremy said about what people want is joined-up care. They want it to be personalised and centred on them. And I think you also need to look beyond the medical professions because if you think about um, conditions like dementia, uh, a lot of the workforce supporting people with dementia are those low-paid home care non-medical workforce and actually you can't do without them so it's about looking right across the breadth. Thank you. Clifford. Um, so I, I think that a number of themes sort of do tie in with the, the last two points really, the last two subjects. Uh, we were talking about morale and I think morale is the key to recruitment and retention uh, and we talk a lot about the workforce of the future but we need to understand that the workforce of the future will have to be trained by the workforce of today. And if we haven't got as many people in our workforce today as we need, then that headroom that I referred to before is, again, taken away. And it means that the time that you could be working with your physician's associates, your advanced care practitioners, whoever, whoever the alternative workforce is, is diminished. And that will diminish both the capacity to train those people and the quality of the training of those people, which is in nobody's interest. So, so fundamentally, we have to look after the workforce we've got today. I think... People say that you know, we may need fewer doctors and we may need other, other, other types of practitioner. That may or may not be true, but I can tell you we've already done that experiment. We've got fewer doctors than every other European country, every North American country and Australasia by a considerable margin. So we've got about a third of the doctors of Germany and half the doctors of France per capita. 
that wouldn't be so bad if we didn't have fewer of everything else. So we've also got, <laughs> we've got fewer physicians associates, we've got fewer advanced care practitioners. So we already run our system on a sort of minimalist model, uh, which again, I sorry to repeat myself endlessly, reduces the headroom that allows you to innovate and to drive change and to prepare yourself for what we know will be a rather different case base in the future from the one that we currently face up with. And I think that the other thing that, that goes with that in order to get the most out of your workforce at the moment is the point Richard made about having the discretionary effort. The NHS has run for many years on discretionary effort. It's not the only organisation to do it. All good organisations encourage and motivate their staff so the discretionary effort is the sort of magic icing on the cake. Um, and that goes hand in hand with treating people as professionals, not just doctors and nurses and physios, but absolutely everybody in the hospital is a professional employee of the NHS. And we have done a lot to try and denude that. Thank you. Jeremy. I think we have to be slightly careful of not falling into the trap of assuming that if we just got the contracts right and got the money right, um, everything will be fine, uh, because we're also talking about skills and behaviours, and I think that's of particular interest to patients. Uh, then I think we're talking about um, people who are recruited for their values as well as their competence. People who are really good at communicating because you know that poor communication is one of the perennial difficulties faced by patients. Uh, people who are good at working in teams and collaborating with their colleagues, not just medical, not just clinical. Um, uh, people who are good at promoting uh, self-care and self supportive self-management. People who are good at signposting their patients to support in the voluntary sector and the community. Um, so facilitation skills, uh, leadership skills, picking up on Sam's point, uh, and uh, an ability to focus on what really matters to the patient, even if that doesn't fall within their professional silo. So I think the, uh, and, and how are we going to get that? It, it isn't just by training a whole cadre of new doctors. It is, uh, I absolutely agree with Candace, we have to think about what is the, uh, the, what is the training, the incentives that you can provide for the, for the current workforce. And a lot of that is going to be about empowering the front line uh, because you're not going to get those kinds of collaborative partnership uh, type behaviours uh, in, uh, in, a, in a culture where people are, uh, don't have power, don't have authority, um, are, are in a hierarchical structure and don't have the headspace. Thank you, Jeremy. Sarah, how empowered do you feel? <laughs> <laughs> um, I completely agree with what um, Jeremy is saying. So our trainees need to change the way that in the future how we deliver care and be adaptable but however the training at the moment doesn't reflect that so if you're a hospital trainee you very much work in your silo mm -hmm. if you're a GP trainee you will come into a hospital and do that hospital job and go back to GP practice but training really needs to start changing and to reflect that actually as a respiratory trainee I go out into the community do some clinics there work with the nurses community nurses um, work with physiotherapists and actually see how that all transpires in that patient pathway as opposed to just sitting um, in a clinical room in the hospital or just working in the ward. So if you've never seen that in practice then actually when you're delivering that care in the future you, you, you don't really know how it works. So I think in the coming years we need to ensure that's all combined um, within the training in all the different specialties. Um, and actually more broad-based training as well. So as a medical registrar you work in the community as well and to deliver that um, you know generalised general medical specialty care um, out in the community as well as in hospitals. Thank you. Richard? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I, some people may have heard me say yesterday when I spent a day 
in a, uh, with a general practitioner. They, they, they weren't doing general practice as I, I remember it. They were, they were acting as a consultant general physician in a GP surgery. They were doing a lot of the care coordination that you mentioned, uh, Sarah. It was all complicated. It all, it, there's no way you could fit these consultations properly into 10 minutes. And we need to recognise that. And we certainly need, I mean, I go out to the community uh, as well. And we, do, we do community cardiology clinics and we love it. And the patients love it. And we mingle with our GP colleagues. We exchange information. We absolutely need to do more of that. Thank you. Claire? So um, I think there are obviously issues with the kind of macro workforce planning. But there's also something about how we manage these things at the more micro, at the organisational level. And I guess two, two things jump into my mind. Um, one is about the crucial nature of relationships between clinical leaders and non-clinical managers and how that can really help to define the working environment. And the second is, is sort of interlinked to that and comes back to the point made about the relationship with primary care, which is that this is all about communication and really about relationships. And if those are working well, then so much of the managing of change is facilitated. Um, but where that doesn't happen, it just gets incredibly difficult. Thank you. Nina. Thank you. Two things. First, numbers and second, money. Um, to follow on from Richard's point, three years is now not long enough for general practitioners to train. Uh, they would like to extend their training. We would like, we, the RCPCH, would like them to extend their training. For example, they have their, about 25 to 30% of their workload is children, but only 30% of general practitioners have had opportunity for any postgraduate paediatric training. So they need longer training, and that means money. Uh, the second point is we um, uh, seem to have abolished broad-based training, which was so valuable. Broad-based training meant that um, uh, trainees could get a breadth of experience in the early years of their training and then could have much more flexibility to focus down on areas that particularly interested them. But we've stopped commissioning um, broad-based training, which is extraordinary. And the third point is we do need to move workforce planning in. Um, we do need to inject some academic rigour into workforce planning. So I'll give you some hard data from our own MMC cohort which we're, of paediatricians which we've been following for the last seven or eight years. And we, uh, the most recent results are just about to be released, so I'm not sure that I can give you all of the data. But, uh, um, but I will say that some of the assumptions about the reasons why... Uh, trainees take time out are not justified and I'm going to emphasize this is absolutely categorically not a, a women's issue our trainees want to take time out of training to do research for parental responsibilities and it represents quite a substantial proportion of, of, of trainees if we don't inject that sort of objective knowledge into our workforce planning for the future of course we're going to get the numbers wrong Thank you very much. We've talked about morale, and it is a, a, a continuing um, theme uh, across the NHS historically as well. I don't think we'd say this is a new thing, but there is a sort of sense that, as someone has said, there's a perfect storm at the moment. Um, I wonder if people could give their views on what the, 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 the two or three key issues are, either the problem or the solution that you see uh, for, for getting us out of this. Um, I'm going to start with Sarah as the person sort of in the trainee position, uh, where perhaps morale is, a, uh, is at a crisis. Yeah, I think just, uh, looking at my junior doctor colleagues, everyone is just frustrated, angry, um, disappointed. And I think it's just where do we go from here? 
and what's the next step and I think it's just it's been carrying on for a couple of years in the background and now it's come to head over the past couple of months and I think it's just you know people are talking about resigning people are going abroad and actually some of my colleagues who are becoming consultants are going abroad now after however many years of training in the UK and you just think you know this is a complete and utter waste of everyone's you know training time here and we're not coming back into NHS so how do we keep everyone um, and what we're we going to do and I think just the fact that it's carrying on for the next you know couple of months anyway there's more strike action coming ahead um, nobody particularly wants to do it but I think caught in a bit of a rock and a hard place and just I think more direction more senior leaders needed to come in to say actually this is not acceptable we need to find a solution to this and not carry on with the standoff at the moment um, and I think really until we get any kind of solution then it's just going to get worse and worse over the next couple of months. Thank you. Richard. Um, if I may return to my theme of the Royal Navy, I was, I was privileged some years ago to spend time at sea studying how they lead people and this fundamental question of morale uh, came up. So when a captain uh, in charge of a warship makes an important decision. Um, right at the beginning of his decision-making process, he weighs that decision against two variables. The first is, how will this decision affect operational capability in our world performance? And the second is, how will this decision affect morale? Which I think is really powerful, because they know if they do not look after the morale of their team, their crew, the ship will not perform. Leadership is the most important determinant of morale. A clear sense of mission. We've lost that sense of mission in a target world. Um, communication, really important. Teamwork. We've lost the firm structure that was so uh, important for maintaining uh, a sense of um, well-being in medicine. Working in a safety culture, where safety is absolutely the first priority, not something that's done as an add-on. And lastly, practice. Candice. I completely support what Richard has said. I mean, I'd add three things. One, I think people um, at the top, including Jeremy Hunt, need to recognise how powerful their position is in terms of creating a sense that their words match their actions and that they do genuinely value staff. And I think if you're at the receiving end of that, then you feel there's a dialogue that's not matched by the actions that are, that are going on and that can happen throughout the organisation. I think there's two things that are happening as a consequence of the financial situation which are particularly problematic. Um, firstly, is we, and, um, we had our myth yesterday about cutting the sandwiches, but actually the non-pay benefits to staff can have a huge impact on morale and we consistently forget that and cut off our noses to spice our faces. And the other thing that came through is in a financially constrained environment, we take power away from staff and we know that empowering staff is one of the most morale-boosting things that you can have. So we're absolutely undermining that at the moment. Thank you, Samantha. I mean, it's basically all about human factors, isn't it? It's about connecting with others. It's about not feeling isolated. It's about feeling being, you're being listened to. It's about feeling that when you do something, you make a difference. And we've been working uh, a lot with our GPs um, recently, and we've formed a provider leadership group. And it's really interesting what they say. They, you know, Some of the things that they feel have been lost in the system over the years. They used to have good relationships with our consultants. They used to see them regularly. They valued it. 
all that's been lost. They now don't know who they connect with on, if they email or, or phone up. They used to enjoy coming to the grand rounds. They used to enjoy having shared learning. I went out to a GP practice um, last week and they were saying, we feel quite isolated. We sit in a room all day on our own because the workloads got so intense that they literally have no breathing space to look up or even connect with other people in their building. And they very much want to work with us and actually come and do some work in the hospital and have, uh, have consultants um, come out and work with them and, uh, and other practitioners. And, and that, at the moment, um, isn't happening. We've also been looking at um, hybrid roles in, in our AD. We have lots of GPs working in our AD quite successfully at the moment. And our out-of-hours provider is struggling to, to, to fill shifts. How can we have joint posts between out-of-hours, primary care and RED? And we've got to get much more imaginative about what is a fulfilling career for a medic in different aspects of the, of the healthcare system and, and what makes them feel valued and what, and what makes them feel um, that, that, that their job's worth doing. Thank you. Good. Uh, so I, I agree with all those comments. And I think, that, I think in terms of how we can improve the morale, though, I think, I think there's a role here for the colleges. I think the colleges are not... Um, uh, uh, they don't necessarily have the same timeline and they don't have the same focus as either the employers or the BMA, for example. Uh, for the very least, you know, uh, we often talk about this is the worst time ever in the NHS. That may or may not be true. Uh, I don't think it is true, actually. But also, um, it certainly isn't the worst time in the whole history of the Royal College of Physicians, which has been around for 500 years. We've had, we've had worse moments than this. And, and they have carried on, and we've carried on having doctors and patients. And so sometimes an even longer prism might be, be useful to us. And I think the colleges are in a very good place to emphasise what's great about being a doctor or an allied professional. So my, my college this year will be the first college to credential advanced care practitioners and give them a nationally recognised qualification, both advanced nurses and advanced paramedics, to become part of that workforce. So I think the, mo the model of colleges can also change. And I, I know the RCPCH is very keen, particularly, on bringing other parts of the workforce along with its college agenda. And then picking up on Sam's point, because I think this, it fits in very nicely, we have to understand that people are likely now to be fully trained as a doctor by the age of 24 and potentially work till they're 68. 44 years doing exactly the same thing? I don't think that's likely. Uh, e even between the walls, most people didn't do the same job for 44 years. Uh, and I think we need to encourage the idea of portfolio careers. We, far, far too long, you were either a GP, you were a paediatrician, you were an anaesthetist, whatever it is. We need to say that actually you're a fully trained doctor uh, you have these competencies, but you could have other competencies, and not over six years, but many of those other competencies could be taught to you in a matter of months. Thank you. Nina? I would, I would absolutely um, agree, particularly with, and I want to pick up on the comments about, about leadership, um, which, which I think Sarah made. Um, we do need to see some leadership um, at, at, at the top, and... Um, it does beg the question, who is in charge of, of the NHS? And this was the question I asked of, of, of Jeremy Hunt yesterday. Is he in charge of the, of, of the NHS? Or, as he suggested, actually we've given the money to NHS England, so it's, it, it's, it's all down to them. So who is in charge of the, uh, of the NHS would be, I think, a very good clarion call, a very good clarion question. Once we've answered that question, we might be in a position to actually look for leadership from those, from those, those leaders. And I also would, would absolutely agree with Clifford that we quietly in our, in the, in the, our Royal Colleges, we have 
We've only been, we, the RCPCH, have only been around for 21 years to the RCP's 500 years. But nonetheless, I think the Royal Colleges will have got a great role as, um, as some sort of rock bed of continuity. Um, political parties and politicians will come and go. Reorganisations of the NHS will come and go. But hopefully the Royal Colleges will continue to be there and can certainly, I would hope, strive to show some continuity and, and, and some leadership. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, so I was reflecting on why the junior doctor um, morale was, was bolstered. What were the factors that, that allowed that to happen? And I think we've alluded to some of them, like the firm structure and things like that. But the other one is around rotation. So I think if you can build allegiance to an organisation rather than moving around as much as we seem to do at the moment, that really helps to create a um, support system. And the other thing is, I guess, linked to that, but it's very small, and it's the real power of local role models, just taking the time to care about the people that they work with and for, and really not <coughs> underestimating simple things like the power of a home-baked cake. Um, those really sort of little sure. things that connect a human being to another human being really matter. Thank you. Ben? Yeah, the AMU cake rotor was, <laughs> was a masterstroke when we did that. Um, I want to declare an interest that our, our staff survey puts us in the top 20% now for motivated staff. And so I don't live in an organisation that's at the other end, <coughs> but five years ago I did. Um, so we went from the bottom to the top. And I think, I think I'm, I'm reflecting on, you know, what is that? And I know this conversation's more than morale. It's, it, 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 it's more than that. But it is little things, and it is about people. And um, I think there's two things that I wanted to say. What, one, one really is the stability issue is very important. At the moment, I, I'm sat here not knowing in August what, what contract the junior doctors in my department will be on um, because there's no detailed contract in, in front of me to implement. And so that inherently comes with its challenges. Um, uh, and if it was uh, not for that, I'd be really racing ahead with our juniors in an exciting way, looking at what seven days look like. And I think I know what that looks like. I'm not sure that the people drafting the contract know what that looks like. Um, and uh, I feel excluded from that process, to be honest, as someone who for years has, has had to take the, do the doctors in the hospital with me. Um, so stability is important because give me the time, give other people like us the time and, and I think we can get it right. Um, the other thing was the specialist versus generalist debate. Um, I, I think that um, when we talk about how to be productive, I think the worst way is when you ask three people to do the same thing. Um, and, you know, how often do we end up with somebody um, uh, having a patient who's referred to one person who then says, oh, I've come and assessed and spent a long time, but it's not me, it's someone else. And, you know, we end up um, kind of burning off a lot of um, our, uh, our time and energy, whereas more generalist approaches like Cliff in A&E, he doesn't have a lot of criteria that he says, oh, no, you need a different type of A&E doctor than me. I mean, maybe major trauma is different, but, you know, but, but do you know what I mean? It's, um, and that inherently makes you feel useful as, 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 a, as a doctor or a nurse or a district nurse. You know, you're going to help and you're, you're responsible for delivering that care and it becomes about your vocation and, and, and why you exist. Uh, and I think that that's important. So we're, we're looking at AMU doctors taking over beds and doing the future hospital model like hospitalists, and everyone's excited about it. And that takes me to the final thing I really wanted to say, uh, is that medicine is fun, or it should be fun. 
Um, and when you inject the fun back in, even in a small way, for half an hour with the cake grater, or you know, you actually say, we've developed you a job that you enjoy and you want to get out of bed in the morning and spend time with these interesting people who are going to teach you and train you, um, you're going to see some nice patients with interesting stories, and at the end of the day, you're going to leave not feeling broken. Um, you're going to you know, feel inspired. And, and it's the fun bit. Um, and I think a lot of the time... Um, People are now seeking permission to have fun, and it's become very, I don't know, top-down and, and technical. Uh, and I think medicine inherently isn't, um, isn't all about that. It is about the people wanting to do their best and deliver the best care they can, and sometimes that isn't easy to display on a spreadsheet. Thank you very much. Well, we've moved from crisis to, to the NHS in crisis to medicine being fun. I think that's a, a nice way to end. I'm very grateful to you all for taking part. Uh, those of you listening to this, please feel free to uh, send in rapid responses or other ways to comment on, on the podcast or what you read in the, in the print BMJ. We really want to hear your views. Thank you very much indeed.